Hello and welcome to Series 2 of the Damn Good Podcast, your one-stop shop for employee benefits and financial education to the hospitality industry. Brought to you by Davidson Asset Management. I'm Alex Keddy, or AK56, your host and corporate benefits specialist. In each episode, I'm joined by an expert from a different field within hospitality. From restaurants, to catering, luxury hotel management, to regional operations, we're asking the big questions to help you, our listeners, arm yourself with the knowledge about the three R's, recruitment, retention, and reward, and how employee benefits play a part in that. Who knows, we might even have some laughs along the way. Hello and welcome to another Damn Good podcast episode. Today we're joined by Ninoska Leopard, Director of People and Culture at King's Folk. Welcome, Nin. Hello, Alex. Thanks for joining us and taking up, you know, giving us your precious time. My pleasure. I always start off these podcasts um, to ask the guest for a potted history to your background so listeners can learn how you reached where you are, obviously, in your career, but also potential highlights, not necessarily related to HR, that perhaps um, my listeners would be intrigued to know about. Okay, well, I started my working life actually working in in what was then known as the personnel department, because... Uh, HR wasn't a thing at the time, um, working for a local construction company. And um, I happened to see an advert, which again, at that time, there was no online applications. You looked in the Evening Standard or you looked in the caterer for a, for a job. And I happened to see an advert which appealed to me because it uh, highlighted the name of a restaurant that I was only familiar with because my boss used to frequent it regularly. It wasn't my local <laughs> And it was Le Caprice. And that's what piqued my interest. And when reading the advert, I thought, wow, I could probably do this job. It was to head up the the personnel function for Caprice Holdings at the time, which was under a different ownership to what it is now, under the ownership of Jeremy King and, and Chris Corbyn. So I randomly applied for this job with no hospitality experience at all just thinking it would be great fun to work within a restaurant environment because I love food. And I was lucky enough to get the job. And, uh, yeah, started my hospitality career very much on the people side, but slowly understood the the importance and the, um, and the value of what people bring to service um, on, on the operational side. Excellent, excellent. You certainly started at one of the, the top uh, restaurants in London, you know, and also, I guess, unlike some of my previous guests, a lot of them started out in other aspects of uh, hospitality and then, as they use the word, fell into HR. You yeah. actually did actually um, start off in the HR, well, yes. as you called it, personnel profession, yeah. which, is, which is brilliant. So yeah. I guess you've seen without giving away too many to my listeners. You know, uh, I guess you've seen quite a lot of changes over the years without I have, giving away actually, your age. And, and I have, actually. And I, well, I, I'm happy to say that I'm 57. Why hide your age? Fantastic, um, fantastic. And um, I think the landscape has changed significantly, but what was very fortunate for me going into that role um, was that the um, the people, the founders of that company were very forward thinking particularly in terms of their their people agenda and they were 
I know the first restaurant group in London who appointed a, a very sort of senior individual to head up that function because they, even back then in the very early 90s, they were able to see how important it was to ensure that the people side of the business was looked after in the same way that the service aspect of the business or the food aspect was um, was looked after. So I was fortunate to work for two very forward-thinking restaurateurs, you know, and I think there is a big difference between a restaurant owner and a restaurateur. And um, after working there for a number of years, I, I had my family and so I started off as a, a single profession, young professional woman wanting to forge my career in in people. But I was lucky that I fell fell into the hospitality sector purely because of my love of food and my love of restaurants. And so to be able to work within that environment was just, you know, so it was so exciting for me. And as many people may know, um, after the, the, the Caprice holding stint, um, they opened the Wolseley, which was their then it's the next big um, restaurant opening, which I um, went back to work, having taken some time off to to look after my family, and um, we opened the Wolseley, and then the the landscape had changed even more. So at that point, because there were many, many, many good restaurants in London, so that that huge challenge that we are still contending with which is recruitment and retention was an even bigger issue um, because we were competing with many other good restaurant brands at the time excellent i mean do you think i mean one of the questions i've got is our paths have crossed on numerous you know mm. regularly involved in but you were involved in now hotels yes. and restaurants i mean other than the obvious different names of the different departments obviously within restaurants and hotels or the different um levels um from a management perspective, what are the sort of key differences, do you think, between operating in a restaurant um, compared to hotels, if any? I mean, I know you mentioned the difference between a restaurant and a restaurateur. Um, it must be different to a certain extent running a hotel compared to just some top-end restaurant yeah. or any restaurant. I mean, I know it's tough just now for restaurants, let's be honest. It can't be easy with the, the cost of living crisis. Yeah. But what sort of... Um, can you maybe in, you know, let, enlighten our listeners mm. to perhaps some of the differences you've noticed yeah. or observed over over your career? Yeah, things? I think you're you're you know highlighting a really um, a really interesting point there. And um, at, as part of my time at, at Corbett and King restaurants, I did move for four years to the Beaumont Hotel, um, and now as you've you've kindly introduced me as the director of people and culture for Kinsfolk and co which is um a new hospitality management company opening our first hotel in in the autumn of 2024 um i've i've been able to um experience and, and understand those key differences between working within a restaurant environment a standalone restaurant and a hotel environment and although of course they are both hospitality businesses I think the difference um, within a hotel environment is that you have longer to please your guest. You have people who are staying within your 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 hotel for at least one night, um, maybe more. Therefore, you have that time to forge and build relationships over a longer period. Whereas in restaurants, you you sometimes only have an hour or an hour and a half 
to have that impact and to create that experience. Um, and I think part of the, the problem, perhaps, if, if you want to call it that, within the restaurant world is that, sadly, in, in the UK, restaurants and working in restaurants has never been as respected, perhaps, as being an employee within within a five-star hotel environment. That's seen more as a career. And, and, and of course... Um, there, there are many common factors that you apply in service within a restaurant and within a hotel. But I think you attract a different type of person when you're recruiting for a hotel environment. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, I, I know when I go around to restaurants or hotels, I mean, I suppose one of the things that the hotels really push on is the loyalty. But I guess you get loyalty within restaurants. As Absolutely. Well. But as you rightly say, I guess that moment of impact is probably less compared to someone that's perhaps staying over. But then again, I suppose in a hotel, you could say that the challenge for them is to get their F and B option yeah. absolutely perfect because when people come, I guess, to London or any other city, they're maybe staying in the hotel, but they don't always eat necessarily in the hotel because they want a choice to go out and look at these different restaurants. I mean, that uh, is available. Yeah, absolutely. And and part of the challenge when you are running a hotel that has a, a restaurant within it is to, as you say, attract those those guests to dine in your restaurant. But equally, it's to attract people who are not staying in the hotel to come and dine in your restaurant and it's 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 a rather sometimes classified as a bit of an uncomfortable concept to walk into a hotel if you're not a guest staying in the hotel to then go and eat in the restaurant and i think from from the kinsfolk perspective we we are lucky enough to be opening our first hotel um in Fitzrovia which is very much still luckily a very um neighborhood feel environment and um we want to make the restaurant um certainly within our hotel an accessible restaurant and i think all hoteliers need to to consider the accessibility not not in the physical sense but the sense that people will feel comfortable and um okay to walk into a hotel and and eat in the restaurant and with the guests that are staying there equally to provide something that is atmospheric that creates that experience which so many people enjoy when they go to restaurants it cannot just be an add-on and I think the way we're approaching our restaurant offer um, is that we are uh, uh, applying the same level of of, uh, effort and thought to the restaurant offer, the bar and the, the food and beverage offer, which again, you know, I sometimes feel that the term itself, food and beverage, is rather stale. Mm. Um, and it's it's a restaurant which offers food and drink, and then you have a bar that offers drink and sometimes food. So it's about changing those very conventional and old-fashioned views of, of a hotel restaurant Rather than calling it the food and beverage department, it is the restaurant. That is a really good point, because I guess if you go to a restaurant, you're not expected to say it's food and beverage, because you know what you're going to a restaurant, so why call it F&B exactly. and beverage? I mean, I suppose it's more turning towards the actual guest experience, and that, yeah. for both, just what does the experience and, and that provide for you, rather than F&B? Very good, yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Um, in terms of when you're fine, what do you think the talent pool I mean I know you work predominantly in London mm. um, but I do know that you've had other guests on who have worked outside yeah. uh, London in the, in the regions 
is the talent pool, do you find, for youngsters in terms of having the people skills? Because I've got to be honest, I think it's one of my bugbears that I um, sometimes bring out in this podcast. I find that um, a lot of youngsters are, and I'm guilty as well, get sometimes tied to the phone, you know, my mobile phone, and I don't necessarily speak to people mm. all the time. And I've got some friends who we've gone out for dinner with, and I sometimes see them on their mobile phone, and I'm thinking, hang on, this should be about, you know, I haven't seen you for X amount of years. Why are we looking at your mobile mm. phones? And I sometimes wonder if the people skills, face-to-face people skills, if that sort of has changed a bit over the years, perhaps. Maybe I'm doing a disservice to the youngsters. I'm sure they're good. And I guess it could also open up avenues for recruitment on the sort of over 50s, I suppose. People who yeah. have got not necessarily been in the restaurant or the hospitality industry, but yeah. could potentially have those skills. Yeah, I think you're, you're right that there is a, a shift in the way young people communicate with each other, with their with their parents, with their peers. Um, and of course, there's no there's no getting away from the fact that technology is now an, a, a part of our everyday life. And and as a recruiter, uh, and I think everyone within my line of work within hospitality will will hopefully agree that there are people out there, if you look hard enough, who have genuinely um, a skill in 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 as much as the fact that they like being around people even if yeah they they need their phone we all need our phones nowadays <laughs> but you know quite recently i was i was eating in a restaurant not far from where my office is and i was i was really taken aback at what i was only able to assume was quite a, a brave um situation which perhaps they were forced into maybe rather than it being a planned um a planned approach but two or three of the waiters there were two waiters and and um a manager who approached us the manager was obviously very experienced you could tell that they'd been in the industry a long time whereas the two waiters who served our table you could tell very quickly that they lacked experience but their genuine warmth, their genuine um, innate um, need to please us and give us a, a nice service was there. And I think as recruiters, if you can search for that within an individual, whether they are young or, as you say, whether they're over 50, you know, you can train the skills, but you cannot train for the personality and the the warmth and an engagement that you need to interact when you're when you're serving a customer or a guest. So, I totally agree that the over fifties are a really underrepresented um, part of our 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 demographic within the industry, and many have so much to offer in terms of life experience. and And one thing I've noticed is is where we had some initiatives to recruit the over 50s which worked really well in in a previous role what was great was that the mix of the old and the young created the most incredible positive and collaborative working environment because you had that almost sort of parental guidance that an over 50s would give and that young fun and highly technically able 
uh, person who was able to then help the older person. I mean, I still get my children to help me work out what's going on with my iPhone. And so we were able to combine those two skills. And I think that is the way forward. It, it cannot just be one or the other. I think to combine the two and, and create that very diverse sense of, um, of different ages in the workplace really does create a very healthy working environment. That's uh, music to my ears to a certain extent because, I mean, I've got to say I'm not the easiest person to get on with technology, as, as my, a lot of my colleagues would vouch for. And some things that put the fear of God into me sort of thing is when I'm asked to maybe either order online at the at the table or something or whatever, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this isn't good. And even look at, you know, look at, I was at a well-known, I'll remain nameless, but a well-known fast food outlet and now you even have to go up and plug. You don't even go and speak to them at the counter other than to say number five yeah. Yeah, and pick it up and you're away. You don't even have to exactly. do anything. It's basically there's no interaction. And I, I would rather be in a in a restaurant or, a, you know, a cafe or something where I have that interaction, where I can actually say what's on the, mm. the menu, get their experience to tell me a bit more about it. But I'd rather have them also be more attentive than none because exactly. sometimes people don't come up to you and you're thinking... So I would rather if someone comes too often and not, you know, yeah, than not yeah. as much. So I suppose it is, as you say, training those individuals. And that leads me on to my sort of next question. I mean, we live in a world where individuals want instantaneous gratification sort of results. Mm. And training programs and upskilling give workers, I guess, that sense of progression. And that's what they want. So, I mean, as I say, youngsters now say, well, I've got this degree. I've got this. Where are you going to get me in my career? How do you sort of combat the overpromotion of individuals too quickly who are perhaps not quite ready for that promotion, but in their mind, the perception is they should be where they're at. So it's getting the sort of, I guess, experience of knowing if that individual is ready for that step. But they're to retain them, ultimately, their next stage is saying, well, I should be XYZ manager, but there might not be a succession plan or something available yet, mm -hmm. or they may not be ready for it. And how do you retain them, but also keep their appetite and enthusiasm to want to progress? Um. <clears throat> Well, it's difficult because, as you say, that the, the younger generation now want instant gratification. They they have an expectation that things will happen very, very quickly. But I I I have always approached that that topic on the basis of everyone's on a journey, and I think as an employer, if you are able to map that journey out from day one and illustrate what that journey looks like so that a new member of staff coming in understands what the criteria are that they perhaps have to meet before they can progress, um, which training sessions or courses they need to attend before they can move up. And they can see that the steps are achievable and that they're not 10 years down the line, but they can be achieved in a year. Then realistically, it's up to that individual to to move as quickly or as slowly down the journey as they as they want to. So progression, I think it's it's almost it's a shared responsibility and you have to put the onus on the individual to uh, to, to to map out their journey as long as you provide the facilities for them to learn and to move through that journey. And I think it's really, really important to manage expectations. And I think there are lots of, of recruiters perhaps who have this sort of desperate need to get people through the door and on board. And I think if you over promise and under deliver, that's where your retention starts to suffer. 
people have to trust their employer. And I think honesty, even in the hardest of times, is the most important element of, of starting to build that employee-employer relationship. So just being honest, showing them what that journey looks like, helping them get to that from that A to B, but also putting the onus on them to, to, to be motivated to achieve that. And if every step of the way you're giving them the opportunities and they can see the end result is in, you know, in the distance, normally I would I would say that it, it gives them that chance to to move at their own pace, but knowing there's an end result um, that they can achieve. And do you think that when you look at the youngsters coming through, is the route to sort of you can identify the ones that are going to be the future my, sort of senior management, uh, managing directors, um, CEOs of um, such things. Do you find that you can identify them and then they go on a sort of like a career path within? So they get an experience of all the different divisions within, say, a hotel or a, a restaurant that they get that experience or are they very much, yeah, that's the whole point, trying to encourage them to yeah, and embrace, not a, understand the whole makeup of a hotel, yeah, including not, finance, which I know probably run away a mile from. But well, I, I think not everyone is made made or 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 right for those very very senior roles and not everyone wants them you know i think you have to find the balance and there'll be those that that reach their ceiling who are very happy to stay there but then you have your real sort of superstars who who want that that ability to move up uh, through the ranks and i think to create a well-rounded managing director or ceo or whatever it might be they have to experience every aspect of the business. And where I talked about this journey, it's exposing all of those elements of the business to every single person within the business so they can identify, well, actually, finance isn't my thing. I don't want to be the next CFO of the company or um, I only really love being on, you know, on the restaurant floor or in the hotel lobby. Therefore, I'm going to take the operational route or I'm really, really interesting, interested in people and their development. Therefore, I'm going to take the people route. But I, th I think as long as those journeys are mapped out and they have options and you also have to have um, a sort of almost like a DNA of what makes that person the right type of person for your organisation, and through regular reviews and, and, and through constant conversations, you can identify whether they they have those core values that match what you want in your senior leadership team. And then you cultivate that through through those young people. Yeah. And I guess mentoring is very important as well. Making Absolutely. Sure that they can be yeah. Associated with someone that's been through that sort of yeah, pathway yeah, or, totally. or journey. As you say. Yeah. Moving on to inclusion and diversity has come up. A lot in other parts of our podcasts. I mean, how would you continue or how do you continue to deal with positive diversity and inclusion within your sort of recruitment policies? I know you've already highlighted, you know, you think that over sort of the, the, the sort of grey haired, mm. my, my brigade, my over 55 sort mm. of thing, are certainly a, a, a part of the sort of demographics that should be looked at. Um, how do you include sort of diversity and inclusion within your organization yeah. and, and previous well it's it's such a um a topical conversation because we we find that you know historically that diversity and inclusion has not been enough of a focus and there are individuals who are not given those opportunities who actually can contribute a huge amount 
And one of the ways that Kinsfolk um, is planning when we, we come on to the recruitment phase of, um, of our first hotel to focus on diversity and inclusion is very much to work with local charities. And um, we're already in talks with, with people within our area who, who look to train and um, develop young school leavers who haven't got a career path in mind, who want to, to find a stable job, but they're not quite sure what they want to do. And um, this particular charity that we're hoping to partner with allows us to create almost like a, a sort of a pop-up academy to encourage young people to come and talk to us and they may be from underprivileged backgrounds they may be from areas of, of the community that have not had the opportunities that that perhaps they should and so diversity I think is very much not just about you know looking at, at the demographic in terms of age or in terms of cultural background I think it's very much about the social responsibility we have to contribute to the local neighbourhood that we work within, um, but also only hiring senior leaders and heads of departments who embrace that um, element of how important it is to, to be diverse and inclusive. Yeah, it's, I suppose it's very important rather than just being given a title, seeing that you are very inclusive and and sort of, uh, you know, doing that approach that you actually walk the, the talk. You talk, sort of yeah, yeah, you walk the walk. Yeah, the walk, walk, the walk that's yeah. exactly, yeah. Um, it's actually, I remember actually one of your HR roundtables that we held, you had a great uh, contribution when you made a, a point about how important it is for employers to communicate and sometimes even think about perhaps even maybe in certain complex areas such as benefits or whatever in their native language. I mean, how well do you think HR generally take into consideration communicating? I mean, to be honest, a lot of people that come from overseas, their English is as good as you know, 100% near enough, you know, but do, do you think that there's certain aspects that we could do better? As I say, maybe looking at communicating at benefits or when you're onboarding somebody, do you think that the hospitality industry has got a good reputation for making sure that their um, individuals from overseas are, are finding are aware. it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we could always do better. And I think w one of the things that that perhaps has given us maybe a, a, some bad press historically is that within our industry we, we, we have not offered the same benefits as other industries but I think that has changed significantly in the last 10 to 15 years and um, when we're recruiting particularly from my perspective it's really important that um, the the messaging that comes through on your recruitment advertising, not not just so much from a list of benefits that you you go through at the end of the advert where you say we offer X, Y and Z. But I think the narrative within the messaging of, of a recruitment advert needs to incorporate the the company's philosophy and culture on providing secure um, and uh, wellness benefits that nowadays are so important to people, and of course, you know, if you if you have someone join your company who's not really been involved in in working for a company that offers life assurance, it's it's super important to explain in their own language if you can by creating translated documentation or bringing someone from their country who 
who can translate for them so that they really do understand what the benefit means. And um, unless you can do that, then it's, it's wasted money because nobody will take up those benefits. Do you think there's a place for even, do you, do you offer, it's interesting, but do you offer language, English language courses? for Yeah, people we have done. Any, and yeah. and, and the, the problem, I think, with some of those lang English language courses is that you learn very sort of basic conversational English. What's important is that the, the communication to those whose first language isn't English is as easy to understand through the, the company comms as it is for those whose first language is English. So um, it's, it's, it's something that we also encourage all of our heads of departments to be able to share, because sometimes if it comes from the sort of head office, you know, HR function, it doesn't always resonate in the same way as if what I would encourage my heads of departments to do in all of their briefings, where it's more, you know, a, a, a more sort of insular departmental discussion where they remind the staff that there are these benefits that they can they can take on and, and benefit from. Um, so it's really important that uh, it's done through the business, not just from the top. And I think that's something that all in, you mentioned earlier, other industries. I mean, we're the Financial Conduct Authority who look after us, our, we regulate our um, business. They're very keen to make sure vulnerable clients are made sure that they're aware of everything. And that's just because it's not only about necessarily in different languages. It's just basically making sure that we, we in our own industry use jargon. And it's trying to get people to understand how to help your clients understand what you're actually offering them. But also as much as things like some people have got, you know, difficulty actually seen perhaps putting it in braille or, yeah. or making it much larger print mm -hmm. or something and all these things are things that we need to do and change I guess and maybe there's a route for technology I know we were I yeah. was a wee bit disparaging about the technology and using you know trying to do a, a menu online or whatever it is but mm. maybe there is scope for that and I mean I suppose well, I guess what you're saying is you want to in, in communication should really be targeted specifically to individuals perhaps Absolutely. rather than just a generic yeah. like, and if you if you think about the way that that young people who perhaps haven't thought about life assurance or pension how how they conduct their everyday life it's not usually through reading long arduous boring financial documentation <laughs> even those over 50 <laughs> avoid that so you know has dare i say it has damn got an instagram account have you encouraged those within the organizations that you represent as financial advisors to get their staff to follow damn on instagram it's a very very good you know, point could... I mean, we, we, there, we do i believe have such a thing but uh that's one for my marketing manager. Yeah. So I will pose that question. When... And then all of your podcasts can be broadcast on there. You can start highlighting the, the various things that DAM can provide. Um... We certainly have done. What thing that we did introduce was the DAM community. And that was really, really important. And a lot of our clients, and it's available even just on just as a plug. You give mm -hmm. me the opportunity to plug it now, so thanks, Nin. <laughs> um, the DAM community is available on the, just nat naturally on our, on our own website. But we do actually offer individual tailored um, packages for our clients mm. who can then use that to promote their benefits internally. So as you say, if they've got group life, you know, they might want to put into different categories and individuals can see that. So it can be used as a way for them to communicate their benefits. But also what we did find from that was exactly, as you say, we felt that rather than giving them screeds of information for them to read, we got our um, consultants 
uh, to do, you know, 20 second uh, videos to explain yeah. perhaps what salary sacrifice is or why it's important to save for a pension or what critical illness is. Mm. And I think that's much more engaging, as you say, for all sorts of generations than just leaving, yeah. you know, posting, you know, screeds of words on mm. it. And I think that people will just get turned off with. So I guess, yeah, lessons for yeah. us to learn from I've as well. I've just thought yeah. about that, actually. Yeah. You know, it might be bringing, bringing the financial sector into the modern era is really what we need to to try and do because it's a bit like tax pensions are that sort of oh i don't really understand it so i'll avoid it I, that is a very fair point and um you lead me on to actually one of the questions i was going to ask later on but i might as well bring it up now i mean ex exactly that i think that a lot of people perhaps don't understand or or want to understand or, or even feel the value of certain benefits until it actually happens mm. you know and a lot of things you mentioned earlier about life cover and critical illness and that, unless it actually happens to a certain individual or a friend or something mm. you don't really perhaps value what that protection and that peace of mind does and of course we're living through a cost of uh, living crisis you know which many younger workers um, may not have experienced before mm. you know and I guess higher interest rates yeah. in fact uh, you know I was speaking to the sound engineer here and he was saying that he's just taken out uh, another mortgage and he's just been um, finding that interest rates have gone up massively mm. to what they were before and I think mortgages level of debt will increase I mean how important do you think financial well-being should be you know promoted not just as a you know within your own organization but also generally within the hospitality industry oh it's it's critical I think you know particularly for us who are operating in the London arena it's it's a really expensive place to live. It always has been. And attracting people to come and, and take a job in London where we know it's expensive, as, as I've just said, but also where um, uncertainty about the cost of living could discourage people from coming into the industry. I think if our messaging can also um, cover those those financial benefits and also the financial those financial workshops and and benefit um, what, what what was it Alex that you used to do for us the the, um, the, benefit the surgeries the yes. surgeries Surges, yes I think those are even more important nowadays that that somebody who has that savvy understanding of of those benefits coming in to talk to people within our industry and to give that financial advice is invaluable. And I often think that people don't appreciate that that service is there through DAM. I always, always um, put it put it out there because I knew how expert all all of you were at DAM. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I mean, I guess that's the, the point. We, we felt that there was a balance between the community sort of hub because there are still people who like to... <laughs> I'll be honest, some people come along to the meeting and it's only when the, some of the youngsters come along and go, my goodness, that was actually quite enlightening. Mm. You know, I actually have had comments like that. I know that sounds really, people say, my goodness, that's a bit strange. Financial services have been enlightening. But when we explained where their, even their pension, even to someone who's 24, you know, didn't understand where their pension, up to that point, they'd been in pensions at other hotel groups or anywhere else and they had never experienced, they just had no idea. They'd been auto-enrolled and they said, I didn't know where my money went, nothing. But when you actually show that they're actually 
contributing towards the economy by investing in things like bonds and gilts and you know equities they start to be quite um as i say enlightened and some people you know initially think oh my goodness i don't want to go along today i don't want to look stupid because it's never taught yeah. as a usual story at school where we never really get yeah. taught these things and it can be a wee bit sort of you know like anything if you're in a group asking people to a question they might be a bit embarrassed but i think generally speaking We've got to get that balance, I'll say, between the finance. And we felt that the Community Hub did that because people can go away and learn a bit more about it. So if they want to speak about a lifetime, lifetime mm. individual savings accounts available. And that is what's really important is to get people to see the value of having to save for a deposit. I know in London, saving for a deposit for a house is yeah. so difficult to do. But we do need to start youngsters to get onto that mm. um, that sort of path of, of trying to understand financially because... Otherwise, we will have individuals who will continue to get themselves into debt. Mm. And that is a nasty place to go, especially with interest rates yeah. going up and up and up. Mm. And I think that's something that we do. I mean, I, I don't suppose, have you seen any changes or trends in individuals' behaviours? Are you maybe seeking higher salaries, obviously, on maybe opting out of pensions or requests for early payment? I've, I've heard in some hotels, some individuals have actually said they need to get paid, you know, Sooner. earlier. Yeah. yeah. Um, well... To be honest, in the last year, being being in a startup situation, we we're we're just on the cusp of of starting our recruitment journey. So I can't comment on whether that is a recent uh, mm-hmm. recent thing, but certainly in in my last role, it it was it was something that post pandemic people were feeling the crunch and there was there was an element of of fear about the future. I think that. That's also something, you know, really important to to highlight that as employers, particularly employing so many people who perhaps are coming from overseas, who don't have their families in the UK, in London, I think there is a responsibility as, as an employer, particularly in hospitality where we employ, as I say, so many overseas um, people that we we guide them through that 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 process of looking after their financial well-being and we we give them the 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 information we provide the facilities and we communicate what that might look like for them as a benefit Um, because some people are here literally with nobody and you know I, I always feel that from a people perspective there is a responsibility to look after their well-being not just their pastoral well-being but their financial well-being and if all of us did that, I think there would be more positive press, perhaps, about what a great industry it is to work in and how well looked after people feel um, and how secure people feel, um, which I think historically has not been the case for our industry. So it's, it's, it's a responsibility that we all have to elevate our, uh, our reputation that's uh, it's quite clear responsibility is the word i mean and i I think that's brilliant to actually say you as employers have a responsibility to the individual and i like that word that you're using to make sure that people sort of understand what why you are you as an employer of choice would want to do that because i guess that's the other thing you're trying to stand out as well Mm. competitions getting harder and harder there's more openings opening in in london and that so making sure that you have got that but as you say communicating but just in a general field everybody should be looking out their responsibility for their employees Mm. ultimately so over the years of my career i've observed individuals you know moving jobs for more money on occasion regretted their decision it's not always greener on the the other side um 
How important is culture and settingness within an organisation? I know you talked briefly earlier about the culture, but I just thought I would um, ask that question. I mean, how important is culture and the setting within an organisation? Well, you know, for me, it's everything, really. It sets the tone for the environment that you're you're first and foremost selling to a prospective employee. And you, you talked a, a couple of questions ago about, you know, walking the walk as well as talking the talk. And I think, you know, every employer would like to 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 be conveying a message of, of, of having a culture of inclusivity, of wellness, of um, empathy, of value, um, but you have to actually prove it through your actions and you have to prove it right from the top. Every business is out there to, to make a profit. That's, that's uh, a given. But, you know, we're looking at our, our cultural philosophy at Kinsfolk and Co through a, a sort of a lens that looks at a sort of triple bottom line. So you have your profit, and it's always with your people and your place in mind. So that that corporate social responsibility of of never compromising your people or the environment that you work within just for the benefit of your profit. If if everyone sort of had that that real approach to to caring for all of those things, I think that we would cre- create much better places to to work. And I also feel that that expectation of the younger generation, as again you said before, is that instant gratification. I feel that that they want to work at places where they feel valued. They want to work in places where they feel that they can contribute and they want to work in places where they feel they can learn. And so for me, you have to be able to offer an environment where where safety, security, fun, happiness and um and collaboration come with every day of your your sort of being when you're at work so yeah i think for me culture is everything without that culture you you can't really move move ahead and from your experience because obviously you're now working for a, as you said earlier a startup i guess is it easier to put in the culture from outset when you when you haven't got any culture and then and you've, you've started off with senior management and then obviously then the challenge will become bringing that down as you say when you start doing a full recruitment mm. but but you've obviously worked in other organizations where the culture was already ingrained how difficult is it i imagine it's as i say perhaps easier for senior management to do it when you're a startup but when you've already come into an organization that's ingrained have you got experience of how you how do you even start trying to change that or is that just, you know just something that you it's like turning around an oil tanker it just takes a <sighs> Well, yeah, I mean, every company has its own culture and, and I think those that do their homework before joining an organisation will, will try and, and identify what that culture is and whether you are the right cultural fit. I I think that nowadays people want to understand what that culture is before they make a commitment to taking on a job. And we're in a fortunate position where we can set the agenda and, and have a very clear message about what our culture should be that's that's the easy step the the more difficult step is then once we start recruiting to ensure that we live that culture and I always I'm quite sort of adamant about the fact that the culture can only come and um, be successful if it comes from the top you know as an individual as as Ninoska 
I can convey the culture that I feel is really important for our people. But if those above me don't believe in it, um, it's very difficult then for me as a sort of a one woman band to create and cultivate that culture. But I, I feel strongly that if you are surrounding yourself, particularly in a leadership team, by like minded people who have very similar sort of personal values and their moral compass is aligned with with what you're trying to achieve as a company we we're really on the cusp of something very exciting at kinsfolk because our leadership team our ceo our commercial director our finance director our restaurants director and myself are really truly aligned with what we want to try and create for our first hotel so i'm confident that we'll deliver that culture if we weren't aligned, that's when it is like an oil tanker, which really doesn't know what direction it's going because yes. you're all you're all working in a different way. And I and I suppose, as you say, from your senior senior leadership, they've probably all come from different areas, different hotels, different management styles. Getting that is, as you say, the key. Really, once you can get that, get the strategic level of what they want to achieve. As you say, the, the the challenge then is getting when you do the recruitment is to get those individuals to buy into what you want in that culture. Because for a lot of people, with all due respect, they might not know who kins are. They don't. That message, so it's getting that. <clears throat> it will be a, I guess, a, an interesting challenge for you yeah. uh, to to get them to understand what your culture yeah. will stand for going forward. And and also when when we go out there to the market to start recruitment, we will have um, hopefully shared more of our story. We will have launched what those values and what our our purpose as a hospitality company is and what we want to try and create for our team, for our guests and for our, our neighbours. And when we recruit, that will be at the very top of the agenda for for when we question candidates that are coming in. It won't just be about whether they can, you know, work an EPOS machine or you know, check a check yeah. a guest in. It'll be very much about the person. Do they fit in? Do they you'll fit identify into that? Once yeah. you've identified, I suppose it's like you have to have your culture in place before you can actually necessarily know if those individuals will fit into it. Exactly. Um, and a bit of trial and error, I suppose, mm. as well. But how exciting! Sounds yeah. like a great journey. In that. Well, you've already sort of discussed benefits generally, but I had one sort of question about that. You know, in terms of what do you think? the sort of younger generation are looking for from their benefits. I mean, I, I've always felt that, you know, I know how long it takes to build up a pension pot. Mm. I know that from experience. Um, but for youngsters, it should be seen as something really important. But I just wondered if there was things out there that do you find that perhaps the younger generation are looking for more um, support or if if you had an uh, an open sort of book, what would you think that they would be looking for? Have, have you seen any sort of trends or changes over the years as to what benefits people are looking for? Um, I think it's, you know, from time immemorial, someone in their 20s is always going to think they don't need a pension. <laughs> I mean, I remember thinking that <laughs> when I was 20. And again, you know, going back to sort of the, the responsibility and, and the educational role that, we as employers need to play it's about telling them why it's important of course choice is a massive thing for young people now they don't want anything that's forced upon them and i think that the sort of slightly sort of shopping basket approach to benefits is what 
what we're gearing towards now where there will be some individuals who who want to take up a benefit because it's very very important to them that another might not and i think it's it's about having having choice now many organizations which i i feel is a really great step are are giving more time off for charitable work that may not be seen as a personal benefit to someone in their 50s but actually for a young person because of the their their sort of sense of social responsibility that is a benefit um so it's about giving choice and i think there's no getting away from the fact that life is getting more expensive and therefore educating your your young people to understand the benefits of something like a pension is really important um but i i honestly think that that the biggest thing that people want and dare I say it because it's the hardest thing for our industry to give is time and flexibility I think that is the 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 sort of the 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 offshoot of what happened through the pandemic was that hybrid working and flexibility has become the norm yeah the number one sort of the thing. number yeah. one thing and you know, if if we could run a restaurant or a hotel with everyone working from home, that would be great. <laughs> but it's absolutely impossible. So flexibility has to be uh, created in different ways. And that may be flexibility in rotors. We've always been quite set on what a rotor looks like. And I just think as managers, we have to, particularly operational managers, have to start thinking creatively to offer that flexibility to young people who want a life outside of work which is what the pandemic really sort of highlighted for a lot of people i i totally agree i mean i i was going to use the word flexibility for my like they talk about flexible benefits but ultimately you're absolutely right time has become so valuable to individuals and, yeah. and having that time spent with what they want to do is so important but mm. as you say operational requirements sometimes come yeah. in but yeah that on that note um i'd just like to thank you nin for offering your personal thoughts and insights um over from over your career and i really thought they were very thought-provoking and so listeners until the next time here's to your tomorrow be seeing you thank you for tuning in to the damn good podcast if you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. It really does help us reach more ears. If you want to hear more from the Damn Good Podcast, you can listen to Serious One Now, which is available at our website at www.damngoodpensions.com or wherever you get your podcast from. If you'd like us to put a question to one of our esteemed guests, please do not hesitate to get in touch. Until the next time, here's to your tomorrow.